The sermon text for today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Listen as I read God's word. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. It's great to be together on this cold, icy morning. As we turn to God's word today, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another, they tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all peoples may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Lord, this morning we come to you and we confess that so often we do not like to be people under authority. Lord, we confess that we buck against those in power or authority over us. We want to be in control. Lord, we confess that and we also come before you today recognizing and affirming that it is good to sit under your gracious rule and authority. King Jesus, we welcome your rulership over us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that as we look at this passage this morning, that you would help us to see a clear picture of who Jesus is. Help us to see a clear picture of who our King is and what he's like. 
of his character. Lord, we ask that as we see Jesus today, that you would leave us, help us to leave here today being changed people. Lord, we gladly sit under your good and wise and generous rule. Help us now as we look at this passage of scripture and all God's people said, amen. This morning, we are talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about Jesus as our king and as we come to subjects like this, um, there can feel like something of a disconnect for us because of our specific cultural environment. And what I mean by that is that our country itself is founded on the rejection of the monarchy. Our country is founded on the rejection of the king. And in fact, our government is set up purposefully not as a monarchy. Our, our government is set up purposefully so that we do not have a king over us. And so that's just sort of the air that we breathe in our particular cultural environment that's something of our identity as Americans. But then we come to the Bible, and the Bible has an awful lot to say about the kingdom of God and the kingship of God, the kingship of Jesus over us. And in fact, what the Bible says is that being a follower of Jesus means that by definition, you are a follower of King Jesus, you're under his rule and authority, and that you are a part of this thing called the kingdom of God. And so we sort of live in this tension. And I would guess that for most people, even if there's not something of a, you know, a strong aversion to the talk of kingship or Jesus as our king or the kingdom of God, it's just not something that, that is all that attractive. People aren't attracted to the message of Christianity because of this idea of the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus, the kingdom of God. And so what that means is that as we think about the kingdom of God here today, uh, we are at something of a disadvantage. And so it just means we have to do a little bit of extra work to sort of wrap our minds around this concept of the kingdom of God and, uh, and understand why it's good news for us. And that's what my prayer is today, is that as we look at this passage, that we would see something of the goodness of God's kingdom and the goodness of King Jesus over us, and that our hearts would desire and delight to submit ourselves to his gracious rule and authority. So today we're talking about the kingdom of God, and we're thinking specifically about the surprising nature of God's kingdom. And so we turn to this passage in the book of Matthew. And before we can get to really looking at uh, what Jesus says here about the kingdom of God and the surprising nature of it, we have to sort of just pull back for a moment and see it in relationship to, see this idea of the kingdom of God in relationship to the political hopes of the Jewish people. Because that's what really helps us see in strong contrast the surprising nature of God's kingdom is when we see it in relationship to the political hopes of the Jewish people. So let's just back up for a moment. Rewind the story of the Bible all the way back to a man named Abram, a man named Abraham. God called Abraham and said to him, I'm going to give you many descendants and I'm going to give you a land of your own. It's a promise God made to Abraham. And then God comes to him 15 years after he made this promise to him. When God originally made the promise, Abraham was 75 years old, well past the age of childbearing. His wife was also physically barren. She was infertile, so she physically was incapable of having children anyways. God makes a promise to this couple who can't have babies that they're going to have a baby who are really old, and then 15 years pass by. 
with no child. Then God comes to Abraham again and says this in Genesis chapter 17. This is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. So the promises that God makes to Abraham is that he's going to have lots of kids, and kings are going to come from those kids, and he's going to give them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. They're going to own it. It's always going to be theirs. So you see the two aspects of a kingdom here. There's the there's king and there's the, the kingdom, the land, the place where the king is going to rule over. So God makes his promise that he's going to give them, uh, kings are going to come from them, and they're going to have this land as an everlasting possession. So fast forward then to the book of Deuteronomy, where God's people are going into the land of Canaan, and Moses gives God's instructions on how to choose a king once they get in there. He says, here's what you're going to look for. Here's what you're going to avoid. Make sure that when you choose a king to be over you, you choose the kind of king that I want you to have and not the kind of king that you would choose on your own. And so the assumption, God is assuming that once they get into the land, he's giving them instruction for how to choose a king. So again, this is a part of the plan that God is enacting. We come then to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God has anointed, he's appointed King uh, David to, to rule over the nation. And David, even though he is a very, very flawed person, is held up as a sort of prototypical king. He's held up as sort of a model king. He's called a man after God's own heart. And one of the uniquenesses of this man, David, is the covenants, the promises that God made to him. So listen to this promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This sort of summarizes this whole longer section that uh, I'm not going to read in its entirety. But God says to him, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So put these things together and we see God promising Abraham that they're going to have a permanent, everlasting land. They're going to have a perpetual lasting inheritance that's always going to be theirs. And then he tells David, there's always going to be someone who's going to sit in the line of David. There's always going to be a king over my people from the line of David. And so this is the environment that this is what the Jewish people grew up in. This is what they, uh, this is what they knew. And so sort of to bring this all together, what we see is that the promises that God makes to his people the promises God makes to his people, they are centered around a king and a kingdom. We see that throughout the Old Testament. God's promises to his people are centered around a king and a kingdom. And at the time of David, it seems as though things are going okay. It seems like things are trending upwards. Things are going very well. But because of David's sin and because of the continued rebellion and the continued disobedience of God's people... God's people are pulled from the land and they are now living in a foreign land under a foreign king. 
That's God's discipline on his people for their rebellion and their disobedience. But all the while that they are in that exile, there's still a hope that the people have. And the hope is that God is going to keep these promises he's made. He's going to return the people of Israel to the land, and he is going to establish them once again as a national entity. That's what the hope of the people was, that God would send them a military leader who would be a conquering king who was going to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish it like it was in the good old days. That's what their hope was. That's what their expectation was. And at the time of Jesus' ministry, they're actually living back in the land, except they're living in their own land that God promised them underneath the rule of the Roman government. And so just think about this. That, that's sort of the environment that the people of Israel have been steeped in, is that their expectation is that God is going to give them a land and God is going to give them a king to rule over them. And it's into that environment, it's, into, it's to those people that Jesus makes these claims about the kingdom of God and what it's like. And so it's with some of that uh, background of the political hopes of God's people that we can see the surprising nature of God's kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. So think about how crazy this must have sounded to those people. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and it's like yeast. So what Jesus does here is he chooses two of the, most, two of the smallest and most unimpressive things that a person could think of, a seed that you can barely see on the tip of your finger and a quickly multiplying fungus. You probably wouldn't eat bread all that often if you actually thought about that's what yeast is, right? Sorry to ruin that for you. It's a quickly multiplying fungus you're eating on your toast, okay? But Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Now, just think about this for a moment. Think of how Jesus could have said this, what Jesus could have said. Jesus could have said, the kingdom of God is like a thunderstorm. It's big. It's powerful, it's untamable, it's dangerous. He could have said that, and he didn't. He could have said, the kingdom of God is like a mountain. It's strong, it's firm, it's established, it's unshakable. He could have said that, or like, he could have said any number of other things. But instead, he chose to pick out the two most seemingly insignificant small things that a person could think of, and he says the kingdom of God is like that. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, these, uh, these two things that Jesus chooses here, it's not, these parables are not uh, terribly difficult to understand what they mean, okay? So Jesus says it's like a mustard seed. It's this tiny little seed that when you plant it, it grows up into a small tree. So it grows up from this little teeny tiny seed into a tree bush thing that's about 10 feet tall. And so the clear point of this is the exponential growth of that tree, the exponential growth of the kingdom. So it starts off as this very teeny tiny small thing and then it gets really, really big. 
So that's, that's clearly the point of that parable. And the parable of the yeast, where Jesus says that it's like yeast that gets worked through dough. Yeast is something that chemically and organically from the inside changes and transforms a loaf of, a loaf of bread. It changes that dough. Actually, something chemically happens within that dough to change it and to transform it. There's a chemical reaction that takes place. And so he's saying that the kingdom of God is like this little mustard seed that starts off so tiny and small and insignificant, and then it's going to have these exponential results. It's going to grow exponentially. And the kingdom of God is like this yeast that works inside of a piece of, of dough, and when you knead it in there, it changes, it transforms from the inside, it organically changes it to be something different than it was before. So you can see the, these, these parables about the kingdom are not incredibly difficult to understand. Okay? You don't have to have a master's degree to understand what Jesus is saying here with regard to these two parables. But what I think is important for us to recognize is that these are not hard to understand, but what these parables do is they show a picture of the kingdom that is completely different from the kingdom that the first century Jewish people had in their mind. Jesus, as he describes what the kingdom of God is like, he says, it's like this thing that is completely unlike, you don't even have a category for this. The people of God in the first century, the Jewish people, they did not want they were not looking for a mustard seed-like kingdom. They were not looking for a kingdom that was seemingly small and unimpressive and sort of uh, hidden. They weren't looking for a kingdom like that. What they wanted was a kingdom that was like a sledgehammer to the teeth of the Roman Empire. That's what they wanted. They wanted a military war hero to overthrow the Romans, to embarrass them for everything that the Romans did to them. That's what they wanted. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like this little bit of yeast that gets worked into dough. And what Jesus does is he shows that there's a completely different kind of, the kingdom of God is a completely different kind of kingdom altogether. And what he's showing his disciples in here and in the rest of his teaching on the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is a far, far better kingdom than you actually ever had in mind. What's true of the kingdoms, of what's true of earthly political kingdoms, and of course that's the category that the Jewish people were thinking in at the time of Jesus, what's true of earthly political kingdoms is that there's something of a zero-sum game, okay? Which is a way of saying that they can't really coexist. Unless you're gonna go into a completely new uncharted territory, uh, for one kingdom to rise, another kingdom has to fall. So either the Jewish people are in power or the Romans are in power, but there is no universe in which Caesar is king over this area of land and there's a king over the Jews and they occupy the same land. That doesn't exist. One kingdom has to fall for another kingdom to rise. And these earthly political kingdoms are constantly and always jockeying for power. They're jockeying for land and for power over other nations. And this is just the way that earthly political kingdoms work. They're a zero-sum game. And Jesus is communicating to us and his disciples that the kingdom of God is not like those earthly political kingdoms. The kingdom of God is not waiting in line behind the Romans 
waiting for its turn to come onto the scene after the Romans get overthrown. Right? The kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is completely different. Right now, here, right now, Jesus says the kingdom of God exists within the Roman Empire. So just imagine, think of how, how subversive and how dangerous of a teaching this is. This is in part what got Jesus killed. Jesus is saying that in the midst of the Roman Empire, where Caesar is Lord, Caesar is viewed as a godlike figure, he's the one in power, he's the one in control, he's the one in authority, he's the king of the kingdom, and Jesus is saying there is a different kingdom that exists right now. It's not waiting in line for the Romans to fall, it exists right here, right now. And it doesn't follow the same rules as an earthly kingdom. This kingdom exists right here, right now, underneath the nose of the Roman Empire. What Jesus is saying is that there is a better kingdom that is here. There's a better kingdom than the earthly political kingdoms that we see and experience that over time, you, can, you know, you can go find that YouTube video. It's about 15 minutes long, so we couldn't show it here today. But it's, but it's a, a video that shows, you know, from, from recorded history, what we know, the rise and the fall and the ebb and the flow of all the kingdoms that we've seen throughout the history of the world. And there's a constant ebb and flow and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And Jesus is saying, there is a true and a better and a lasting kingdom that is here. The Roman Empire does not pose any threat to the kingdom of God. It's not like, in some ways it's backwards to think of the kingdom of God coming into the Roman Empire. You know, the kingdom of God is sort of weaseling its way into the Roman Empire. It's more like the Roman Empire is squatting in the backyard of God's kingdom. Right? God's kingdom doesn't need to ask permission to break into the kingdom of the Romans. The Romans are sitting on occupied land that already belongs to God, that is already under the rule of King Jesus. They are the ones who are the imposter, not the kingdom of God. And so Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is that there is, there is a new, better, lasting kingdom that is here. And the good news of the gospel for us is this. In Jesus, God has made us citizens of this better kingdom. That's the good news. In Jesus, God has made us citizens of this better kingdom. The only way to get into that kingdom is to go through the king. There is no entrance exam. There is no citizenship test like there would be if you were coming to the United States from some other part of the world. The way into the kingdom of God is not through brute force. It's not through political maneuvering or political power. It's not through some sort of spiritual or moral achievement. The way into the kingdom of God is through the king himself. And as the Bible says, we who are people who have rebelled against that king, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? We have rebelled against our king, and he's the only way back into the kingdom. That would be horrifying, terrible, scary news, except for when we see the nature, we see the character of the king. Matthew, in the book that he's written, 
that tells about the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, all throughout this book that is called Matthew, there's these pictures. He's intentional. He's strategic to show the royalty and sort of the, the kingly nature of Jesus. So you've got Jesus in his birth narrative. And Herod, of course, hears that a king has been born and he's furious because that threatens his kingdom. But then there are magi who come from a foreign place and they bring gifts and they bow down and worship him. And they give him gifts that are, are the type of gifts that are given to royalty. So he's showing us Jesus as royalty, even in his birth. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus gives all these parables and teachings about the kingdom. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and is welcomed by the people as a king. Except he didn't come riding on a war horse. He didn't come with a giant military parade. He came riding by himself on a donkey in complete and utter humility. We see that Jesus, before he is executed, the Roman soldiers who are the ones who look like they are in power, who look like they're the ones who have the authority, they have the upper hand over this pathetic little Jesus guy, they mock him and they ridicule him and they, as, they're, as they're beating him, they put on him a purple robe, which is a symbol of royalty. And they give him a staff and they twist together this crown for the king that's made of these thorns that's intended to be shoved into his skin so that it, it, it makes him bleed and it adds to the agony of what he's already been experiencing. And they mock him and they, and they bow before him. They say, hail king of the Jews. And it's a mockery. And Jesus, in humility, submits himself to these people who are executing him. And then as he hangs on the cross, he suffers and dies as a criminal, and above him there is a sign. And that sign reads, the king of the Jews. And again, that, that is the Roman Empire's way of twisting the knife that has already been stuck inside of the heart of Jesus. It's a symbol of condemnation. It's a symbol of insult. Oh, king, are you? And he's hanging on a cross underneath this sign that declares him to be the king. And of course, the irony is they don't know how true it is what they've written on that sign. So all throughout the life of Jesus in, in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus being portrayed in this sort of kingly, royal way. And, and what's so important for us to see is that Jesus, the Bible describes him as the king over creation, the one with all authority, with all power, who owns everything, and yet what he did was he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of taking on human flesh and identifying with us to come be a part of the same world with the people who have rejected him as king. To come be a part of the same world with people who have overthrown, who have thrown off his rulership over them. He came to be with us who are rebels and humbled himself, subjected himself to us and to the, 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 the sickening things that humans do to one another that Jesus experienced himself. He subjected himself in humility to that. And so what we see about King Jesus 
is his humility. That Jesus, as the one who has complete control, authority over all things, chose to use that power and control to accomplish our greatest good. He suffered and he died so that we could be made right with God and brought into the kingdom of God and be given the title of sons and daughters. That's what he did for us. Jesus used his power and authority not to crush us like he could have, but he used it to serve us and to love us. And so we see this picture of who God is. We see this picture of the kind of king that Jesus is. And that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This is who our king is, and that's why we have no fear coming before him. We do not come to God in fear, wondering if he's going to crush us or clobber us or not. Jesus has demonstrated, he's shown us the humility, he's shown us the welcome that God has extended to us. And so the way that we come to this king then, the way we get into the kingdom is through the king. There's no entrance exam, there's no, no test to pass, there's nothing except offering your life to the king. There's nothing except trusting the king and trusting yourself to him, giving your complete and total allegiance to him. That's what it costs to, get, to become a part of the kingdom of God. Now, I think as we sort of bring this to a close here this morning and as we think about the surprising nature of God's kingdom and the wonderful and surprising character of Jesus as our king, I think where we have to land is, is here. This is what we can, I think, take away and do from this passage, what Jesus teaches about the kingdom. Embrace the smallness of life in God's kingdom. Embrace the smallness of life in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God, as Jesus says, is not like the kingdom that the Jewish people had expected. It's not like the kingdom that we would expect. It's something far better than what we had hoped for. Jesus, earlier in the book of Matthew, taught his disciples to pray, and he said, pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is instructing his disciples to pray that the rule and the reign, the justice and the goodness of God that exists over all creation would be experienced, would be expressed, would be realized in the world right now as we see it and experience it and live in it. And the question is, when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, do we then just sit, how, how does that happen? Do we just sit back and say, okay, God, do it? Certainly there are some times where God breaks in. The kingdom of God breaks into our world in miraculous ways. Certainly that's true. But Jesus' teaching on the kingdom centers around the smallness, the ordinariness of this kingdom, it's not like what you would expect. And so my encouragement for us, for you today, is embrace the smallness of life in God's kingdom. The way that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven is through every little act of obedience that seems small, that seems unimportant, that seems ordinary, that seems tedious. When we choose to obey the king in everything, that is how the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. I'd like to read for you, there's a book. There's a book called Every Moment Holy. And this is a book of liturgies, actually. 
Some of you here know this book because I've uh, read to you from it and then you've gone out and purchased it yourself or you've heard about it and have it. Uh, It's spectacular. It offers uh, liturgies for the everyday stuff of life. And it gives different liturgies for different seasons, different situations. And there's one in here that I'm going to read, and I'm going to try and do it without crying. Uh, but there's no promises here. Uh, it's called The Liturgy for Changing Diapers. And I'm serious about the crying part, too. <laughs> uh, this is, in my estimation, one of the... This, this liturgy so perfectly exemplifies embracing the smallness of life in God's kingdom. So just listen. A liturgy for changing diapers. Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that like bright, ragged patches are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I'm not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I am tending a budding heart that rooted early in such grace-filled devotion may one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction. So this little act of diapering, though in form sometimes feels as base drudgery, might be better described as one of 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy, let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and faith, a true investment in the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage point of eternity. O Lord, how the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart. How the changing of a heart might sit upstream from the changing of the world. Isn't that great? It is when we become a part of the kingdom of God, When we are invited into this kingdom, we're invited into a kingdom where every single moment can be filled with that kind of meaning and purpose. And it's in those small acts of seemingly unimportant drudgery when we choose to obey our king. It's in those moments that the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. As we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you Uh, to bow for a moment of quiet reflection and confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. 
We've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by the things that we have done, as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We confess, Lord, that we have rejected your rulership over us. We have rejected you as king over us. And in addition to this, we have not loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. We pray that in your mercy you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.